Hi, this is Nick Fletcher from Children's Healthcare of Atlanta and Emory University, and this is Interview with the PediPod. My guest today is none other than I Results, who is a pediatric orthopedist at Michigan Orthopedic Surgeons. He works out of the Beaumont Hospital as well as the Henry Ford Hospital. And Ira is really a world-class thinker, especially when it comes to hip pathology and complex hip disorders such as skiffy, perthes, and probably what he's best known for, which is hip dysplasia. Ira has a uh, really interesting background, being the son of an orthopedic surgeon and growing up initially in Toronto before moving to uh, El Paso, Texas. We actually share quite a bit in common, as he went to Vanderbilt for undergrad, as did I, as well as Texas Scottish Rite for fellowship. I have always really found Ira to be a tremendous lecturer, and I think that a lot of my understanding of adolescent and young adult hip dysplasia, which does play a large part of my practice, really has come from reading uh, the works that he's published, as well as listening to him talk at such venues as IPOS and POSNA. So I really enjoyed talking with Ira. I think it was a uh, a really thoughtful, insightful conversation about especially where we're at and where we're going in the hip world. And I hope that you enjoy it as much as I did. Uh, As always, I'd like to thank Carter Clement and the rest of the podcast team for helping produce this, as well as to you, the listener, for continuing to support this concept. And currently, we are just under a month out from... Uh, the annual meeting, and I look forward to seeing as many of you as I can out there, and uh, I hope that you have safe travels. And again, thank you for listening to this podcast. So, well, Ira, welcome to the podcast. For those who are listening, it is a beautiful Sunday morning here in Atlanta. Ira just got off the tennis court uh, after a couple hours, so I think he's uh, he's all warmed up. But I really appreciate you taking the time to, to sit down with me today. It's a pleasure. Great. So uh, I've said before, one of the challenges of doing this podcast is I don't have a whole lot of, uh, of material to work with. There's, you don't have a giant Wikipedia page uh, dedicated to you. So I did some digging, but I, I don't have a big understanding of sort of your background and where you grew up. And I know that we share a couple of similarities from an educational standpoint. We both went to great institutions at Vanderbilt at TSRH that we'll get to uh, later. But where'd you grow up and sort of what were you like as a kid? I grew up in Toronto, um, Ontario, and uh, lived there till I was like 14 and a half. And then right before I was supposed to start my grade nine in Canada, which is first year of high school in the United States, my family moved to El Paso, Texas. Oh, wow. So I, uh, I moved to El Paso, Texas the day before starting high school. And that's where I graduated from high school. That's a big change. It was a big change. Yeah. Yeah. I, I assume that was like uh, parents work kind of thing. Yeah, my father was an orthopedic surgeon, actually, in Toronto. He worked at a hospital called St. Michael's Hospital downtown. It's a pretty big trauma center now, I think. And there were changes in the Canadian government and how they were paying for healthcare in general and physicians in particular. And at the time, many surgeons from Canada were emigrating to the United States. And so my father found it difficult to work in Canada for a number of reasons. And he decided that his life and our lives would be better off living in the U.S. And so... We moved to El Paso, Texas. That was a huge change from from Toronto because I, I I never heard a word of Spanish spoken in my entire fourteen and a half years, and then moved to El Paso, Texas, and really nobody spoke in the school I went to. Very few people spoke English outside of the classroom, so it was a bit of a challenge. Yeah, that's a and the day before high school starts is uh, is not yeah. when I have that major life change. It was a very big change, no question about it. So what were you like as a kid? I mean, uh, I, my father was a radiologist, and I quickly realized, A, that I wanted to do medicine, and B, I had no interest in doing radiology. Was it something that sort of dragged you along? Were you always a tinker? I was, and a- surround, I was surrounded by all doctors in my life. My father had an older brother who was sort of like a grandfather to me, who was 20 years older than my dad, who was a really incredible guy. You know, he was in World War II, and he was a, called a GP general surgeon. So he did general practice, but I think he did some minor surgical procedures and he was very influential. I looked up to him, my father, and I really only knew physicians. Like I I didn't know anybody who was in business. I I had a a couple uncles who were in business and one who was in law, but it just never seemed that interesting to me. So I always gravitated towards science and towards medicine. And I thought it was very interesting and I still do. (laughs) So, yeah. 
So, so, uh, but orthopedics was something obviously that you were introduced to as at a, at a young age. Did you have the opportunity either when you moved to, uh, to Texas or even up in, in Toronto to spend time in the ORs and, and get to meet the surgeons really in their practice environment? I was really a poor student when I was a kid. Like I didn't really like become a decent student until probably sophomore year, end of sophomore year in high school. And until that time, I don't think if I had told anybody I might be interested in becoming a physician, they would have said, there's no chance. So um, I kind of buckled down when I was like a sophomore in high school. I went to a Catholic school. They were pretty strict, and I had a healthy fear of the Christian brothers. So that's, I think, what got me looking hard. And then I, I did have a chance to go to the operating room a couple times with my father when I was in high school, and it really piqued my interest. My first trip to the operating room wasn't so good because I was watching him operate on a hand and this little kid had been playing in a, in a cemetery and a gravestone fell on his hand. So you can imagine his hand was crushed. And, you know, I watched him kind of fascinatingly what, watch what he was doing. And then the next thing I know, I was on a stretcher in the hallway looking up at the ceiling <laughs> covered in sweat. And so that's, that was my first trip to the operating room. Yeah, yeah. So the logical next step was to pursue a career in that in that exactly. specialty. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> if at first you don't succeed, try again. That's exactly right. Yeah. But so that's sort of what got my, got me interested. And then you know, in medical school, I mean, in college, I I didn't uh, really have any exposure. I never worked in the hospital. I never volunteered. I did work in a research lab because this chemistry professor thought I would I'd be interested in it, and I really enjoyed that, to be honest with you. And so that's sort of. Uh, one thing I still enjoy today is like trying to get into the lab. You know, it's funny that you said that you didn't buckle down until sophomore year and then you, uh, but you still managed to get to Vanderbilt. And I would say that if, if I were to reapply to Vanderbilt in 2022, there's no shot I'm getting in. It sounds like we were sort of in the same boat. There, academically. There's, no ch- there's no chance I would get in today. Like I had, uh, I had good grades, but I had like a mediocre SAT scores. You know, actually that's a funny story because I, I was a senior in high school, and I didn't know where I was going to go. And my parents were unfamiliar with the U.S. system because in Canada, you, you just like submit your marks, and they kind of tell you which schools you're qualified to go to. So there was a counselor in my high school, and he said, are you going to go to college next year? I, I would say 40% of my high school class did not go to college. And um, I said, yeah. And he said, well, where? And I said, I don't know. And he gave me two applications. One was to Northwestern, and one was to Vanderbilt. Okay. So I applied to both schools, and... Northwestern was like significantly more expensive at the time than Vanderbilt. It was like three times the price. So my parents said, you know, if you want to go out of state, you can go to Vanderbilt. Otherwise, you can go to UT Austin with everybody else. So I like the small size of Vanderbilt. So I, I ended up, I liked it. But that's yeah, great. that's great. Yeah. That's great. And, and so you're, you know, your sort of pedigree from there is pretty strong because you went on to go to UPenn. So you obviously picked things up when you were at Vanderbilt. Was medicine, I mean, you had, you had this background, but obviously there was something at Vanderbilt that sort of uh, pulled you into continuing that career in medicine. So I had two very influential teachers in high school. Uh, one was my chemistry teacher, who was an incredibly, incredibly good te- uh, teacher. And the other one was my math teacher, who um, was an amazing teacher. And they uh, really prepared me incredibly well for college, like Unbeknownst to us, we basically did like freshman year chemistry in high school and most of calculus and differential equations in high school because they just marched us on along at the rate that the students could tolerate. So I, I gravitate to those two subjects at Vanderbilt because they came easy, at least initially to me, because uh, we were well prepared. And then I felt like, oh, well, I could I could do medicine because I'm succeeding. And, you know, back then, you know, it, if you didn't get good grades, you th- you'd think your shot at getting into medical school was like zero. So I was fortunate to do well in, in my freshman and sophomore year. And then I started taking it seriously, that the chance that I get into a, a good medical school. Yeah, well, well, you did. And and you ended up in Boston and, and then ended up obviously going on to TSRH. Tell me about that that process, because that both programs have changed a lot, you know, over the years, obviously. Um, I'm assuming you were there when John Hall was still was. going. Yeah. So my father, as I mentioned, was an orthopedic surgeon, and he trained in Toronto. He trained with John Hall. And like anyone else who encountered John Hall, he had like unbelievable admiration and respect for him as a physician and a surgeon and a person. 
And so when I was interviewing, I went to Boston and I met John Hall. And, you know, I don't know if, if uh, where'd you do your residency? At Vanderbilt. I was uh, yeah. undergrad med school in residency. Oh, wow. Yeah. So in Boston at the time, you know, you just go into this library on the sixth floor of the Mass General and like every chief of every service would be sitting around a table asking you questions. That was sort of like your interview. And then they'd interview you with a couple other people who you'd never heard of before. And uh, I interviewed with all, all these people and, and met John Hall for the first time. And then, you know, the match wasn't as stringent back then as it is today. So there was a lot, a lot of uh, fudging going around. And so I talked to a bunch of people, you know, and looking at residency programs. And I thought I would really like that program. You know, I liked the city. I liked the hospital. I sort of went into orthopedics with the intention of becoming a pediatric orthopedic surgeon. When I, when I was in medical school, I, I actually initially applied for residency in OBGYN. Oh, wow. And then I did my sub-internship, and I'm like, oh, I think I'm making a mistake. <laughs> and so I told my parents that I was going to go do an MBA for a year at Wharton because you could just get in. And they said, not, not so quick. So my father said, why don't you do a pediatric orthopedic rotation? You know, I, I, of course, no son of an orthopedic surgeon wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon. You have to find right. your own way. And so I just did a pediatric orthopedic rotation with Bill Robertson, who was at CHOP, and Dennis Drummond. And it was really probably my favorite rotation in all of medical school. And I said, now this I can do for the rest of my life. And that's how, how it went. So I was very late to the game. I never did like an outside rotation. I didn't do any research in orthopedics. And I just was fortunate to get a, uh, some good interviews and get into a good residency program. And then Peds obviously has a storied history at, at, in Boston. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was really, I think, the reason I chose Boston primarily was because it had its own children's hospital, and I really wanted to do pediatrics. I did do other rotations in orthopedic surgery, and I really liked them all, but I really like working with kids. You know, it's like, it's just a, a pleasure to be able to work with kids, and, and I, I, I don't find parents at all bothersome to me. Some, some of our colleagues, particularly in the adult world, always ask me, how can you deal with these mothers and fathers? And I mean, I think that that's like part, that's part of what attracted me to the field because, you know, even if it's a simple problem, the parents are really suffering inside. They don't understand and, and you can really help the parents. And it really was gratifying to me. So I have always thought I was going to be a pediatric orthopedic surgeon and then doing my residency reinforced that for me. It's funny, you know, I, I know you work with, with students and residents and, and they sort of want to figure out which area within orthopedics to end up in. And you're right. I often say, listen, every subspecialty has its challenges. And in the peds world, it's, you know, parents and typically neuromuscular kids, because I think neuromuscular kids scare a lot of students and residents yeah. coming through. They don't know how to manage them. And for those of us who do it, I, I totally agree. We love it. Now, conversely, the adult back pain I think, you know, you got to embrace that if you're going to be an adult spine surgeon or workers comp, if you're going to be a hand surgeon. Um, so there's, there's the little things you just have to be comfortable with. I, I, I agree. I agree. I, I, I always thought like pediatric orthopedic surgery was sort of one of the purest areas of medicine. Um, you know, if you're really working in a children's hospital, you know, you, you see very little ulterior gain and everything you see is a problem. Even if it's a psychological problem, it's still a problem. And yeah, it's something you can potentially help somebody with. So the decision to move from there to Dallas, obviously there's a connection. I mean, Tony trained uh, in Boston and, and they have a pretty tight uh, relationship with, with, between the groups. Did that play a role or, or, or what sort of brought you back? Not out? really. Like I, I, when I was in Boston, Dr. Kasser said, you know, you really, you, you know, we used to do like a lot of pediatrics in our residency program in Boston. So we would do six months at Children's and three months at the Mass General, and then you do another three months as a senior, and then I had six months off to do research, and I worked at Children's. So I was there for a good year and a half, and he said, you know, you've been here a long time. You should go somewhere else to do your fellowship. And, you know, back then, I looked at Toronto. I looked at um, Children's Memorial. I looked at Dallas, and I looked at San Diego. I think there were only 11 people applying in for pediatrics the year I applied, so you didn't have to travel all over the place to find a spot. And, um, you know, I liked them all. I thought they were all really good opportunities. I chose Dallas because I just thought it was a, it was a very comprehensive program. And um, I liked the fact that there was not, no trauma. 
And one of the things that we had in Boston was a lot of trauma, and both in adult and pediatrics, and a lot of night work. And I, I just felt it would be the best place for me to like be able to think and figure things out and read and kind of in, digest pediatric orthopedic surgery um, rather than being up all night, you know, fixing fractures. So that's really why I chose that place. And thankfully, they chose me. And I also, you know, thought the staff were fantastic. Like they're just great people, great clinicians, great technicians. And it was a pleasure. And, you know, I'm very thankful that I was able to go there. Yeah, I agree. I mean, you really are part of a family. It's it's such a great, great yeah. year. Yeah. I mean, tell me about the year. Obviously, like we, we know sort of where you've ended up. Um, but I know that you obviously have a big interest in hip. And there were people who were interested in that. But this was pre, you predate Dan. Cicado, yeah, and Dave Pedazzo, obviously, and so, so was there when you left there? Was the idea you're going to be a general pediatric orthopedist, or, or, or tell me about the year and sort of how how it shaped you or your future? So I always thought that I was going to end up in El Paso, Texas, practicing with my father and his group, and just being a general orthopedic surgeon, frankly. And the more pediatrics I did, the more it became apparent to me that. There was no way I was going to do that. And then I met my wife when I was a fellow. And so she had no interest in moving to El Paso, Texas. She was a Midwesterner and had very strong roots in the Midwest. And so we decided to get married and, and, and moving to El Paso was not in her reality. And it was not, and it really was not in mine. And I'm very thankful that it, did, it worked out that I didn't go there. It would have been great to work with my father, but it, you know, it would not have been a great place for me from a practice standpoint, especially growing as a, as a physician. And that's so important in, in your careers to grow and not stagnate and do things just the way you were shown and think the way you were, you, you were taught to think initially. So um, I ended up taking a job actually in Chicago at Hope Children's Hospital. And I worked there for a couple of years and it was a great first job, but it was just all clinical work. And Chicago is kind of a weird place for medicine and, and pediatric orthopedics. There's a lot of pediatric orthopedic surgeons there. And it was practiced very differently than I was taught in Boston and in, in Dallas. And so after passing my boards, I decided to like find something more academic. And then we decided to come back to, to Detroit, which is where my wife is from. Gotcha. Okay. And w- with the goal of still being a general Pediatric yeah, orthopedist. Yeah. I did. I did like you know very very. I always had an interest in hips, like for a few reasons. When I was a resident, all the all the surgeons did hip surgery. Uh, John Hall, Mike Millis, of course, did it. But so did John Emmons and Zeke Zimbler, who was at the Mass General. Everybody did hip surgery. So, you know, it was just part of a, a general practice. And I had always been very very interested in it. And I didn't completely understand it. And when I came into practice, I was not interested in doing only hip surgery. I did lots of spine, and I, I still do spine surgery. And I still think of myself as a general pediatric orthopedic surgeon because I still do everything. But the way things have evolved, probably 80% of what I do surgically is hip surgery. So when you came back to Detroit, what was the program like? It, uh, you know, I did a little bit of background research. I think there are like three or four of you now, right? So I was working at, I, I was looking at Children's Hospital and I was working, looking at Henry Ford Hospital. And I decided to go to Henry Ford Hospital because I had all these like ideas about trying to do some basic research. I don't know if you know Brian Snyder. I do. Yeah. So Brian was uh, my chief resident. I think maybe he was two years ahead of me. And I worked for him in his lab when I did my research. And we got along great and continue to get along great. And we're, we're still friends. And I really liked his ability to do both things. And I didn't have the basic science training like the PhD like he did, but I I knew I had questions that I wanted to ask. And so I went to Henry Ford because the researchers there are super collaborative with clinicians and they really like embrace clinicians and involve them. And we we really started a, a good project when I was there. And, you know, I've been sort of dabbling in it ever since. When you say researchers, and we're going to get to this a little bit later, but what was, you know, obviously researchers could be, you know, uh, other clinicians, they could be a research staff, they could be people in other departments. What was it that that really helped you? They had a a bone and joint lab and they had like biochemists and engineers and molecular biologists who were 
interested in different aspects of musculoskeletal research. And, you know, I spent a lot of time with them when I was interviewing and we would just brainstorm and it became evident that it would be possible to like start a project from the ground up. Plus they had a lot of like internal funding and that was very important to getting things started. So I'm curious when you talk to residents and fellows internally or at IPOS, Mm -hmm. because I think that you know, if you go to a TSRH or a Boston, they obviously have something more or less in place. If you were to take a job at either of those, the research part can be built pretty quickly. What advice are you giving people who uh, who may who may be coming to a place like you were? Well, I always tell people to follow their passion, like to really do what they like to do, because the environment that we practice in is changing a lot. And as you probably know, you know, I mean, you're well aware of that. And uh, if you don't really enjoy like what you're doing inside the little exam rooms with the families and the kids, then you are not going to be happy. And so I tell people first to follow, follow what they really like to do. And if they like hand surgery, do hand surgery. If they like foot and ankle, do foot and ankle. But follow what they like to do. And then I always tell the residents, and we, we've had a, a, quite a number of kids, go, uh, not kid, residents, go into pediatrics that they have to like practice in an environment in which they feel comfortable and stimulated. And sometimes it's private practice. Sometimes it's part of a large group. Sometimes it's at a children's hospital. And I fully believe everybody has like a really unique and valuable role to play, regardless of whether they're like doing tons of research and speaking on the podium at, at, at POSNA or they're teaching residents how to take care of kids, you know, just general or general pediatric orthopedic things. And, and I encourage them to find what they're comfortable doing in an environment that they're comfortable working. So that that's sort of my advice. It's not really specific, but I think it's true. And, you know, it took me a couple jobs to find it. And I learned that along the way. Yeah, I think that's really sage advice for sure. So going back to sort of your practice, so you get to uh, to Detroit. What was the yeah. practice like at the beginning? I mean, how, how long did it take to build something that you would consider sort of a busy clinical practice? Well, I really got lucky. You know, I, I, I have to say it's not... I wish I could say I did it, but I really didn't do it. I came here and I I definitely had an interest in hip surgery and I had done, you know, in my first two years of practice in Chicago, I probably did, you know, no more than 20 PAOs, which is all we were doing at the time. We weren't, the surgical dislocation hadn't been described yet. And the um, concept of impingement hadn't been described yet. So when I came here, Jeff Mass was in Detroit and he had really softened the ground for hip preservation. Like he would speak a lot and everybody, he's obviously an incredibly famous, very charismatic person. And he left like basically a month after I got here. And then all of a sudden there, there was a guy who was interested in doing hips and there were lots of patients around. And basically this hot potato landed in my lap and seeing all these hip patients. And then I started seeing adults which I never thought I was going to see. And it just grew from there. And it just grew and grew and grew. And as as it grew, I became more and more interested in it. And I remembered something that Jim Kasser said twice to me during residency that I didn't understand at the time. And he, he said, write about what you see. You know, in other words, study what you see. And I realized that like the hip was very new. And I suddenly had like a big practice of, of hips. And it happened like within probably a year or a year and a half. And I just couldn't like just operate on people without understanding what I was doing and being part of a larger movement to understand and and categorize and follow all these patients. And then that led to joining the anchor group, which was nascent at the time. And I think the rest is history, Nick. Well, I'm I'm curious because again, uh, I, so I learned PAO from Dave and Dan, but it didn't exist at Vanderbilt. Uh, obviously, it exists now quite a bit uh, yeah. with John. Um, so I'm assuming most of your PAO work was as a resident. If you learned it from Mike, because I don't think anybody in Dallas was doing it, so you sort of tr- jumped jumped over that year and, and kept doing it in in practice. Yeah, I learned. I I spent a lot of time with Mike Millis. You know, it was a it was a lengthy procedure when I was a resident and. Um, I think a lot of the fellows there weren't that interested in it. They were interested in spine surgery for the most part. And I really personally got along well with Mike Millis, and I conceptually liked what he was doing because, you know, at the time when I was a resident, total hips were not like, I think they were going through a really 
low period. They had this screw-in cup. You know, the, the challenge was acetabular fixation, and we'd screw this cup into the acetabulum, and you could only screw it in in retroversion, in retrospect, which nobody really understood. And so as a resident, we would spend like all night long reducing dislocated hips um, in the emergency room. And, and I thought to myself, man, there has to be a better way than subjecting these poor patients to total hip replacements. And then I met Mike Millis, and I really liked conceptually what he was doing. And then at the same time, when I was a junior resident, Professor Gons came to Boston and, and, you know, you just listen to him speak for one hour and you're hooked. It's like a religion. And then that's, that got me very interested. And then I spent absolutely as much time as I could with Mike Millis. In fact, when I was on the research block, he was very nice. And I would sit at his desk all day long, writing a chapter, writing chapters or doing stuff for, for Brian Snyder. And then I would also like look at his books and, look at all his x-rays and read as much as I could. He had, he, he had some good textbooks in his office and that got me very interested. And then I don't remember this, but young Joe Kim tells me this all the time that when I was a senior resident, Mike Millis let me do a, a whole PAO. And I don't know why I don't remember it, but he said that he was the junior resident and I was doing it. And Mike Millis was on the other side of the table and that he basically kind of walked me through and I did the whole case. But I, I for some reason, can't Maybe I blocked it out. I don't know, but I can't remember it. And then, and then I practice every time there was a cadaver access. I, I would practice uh, the PAO on a cadaver. So they had this Harvard hip course with some cadaver work, and I would go clean up and then use the cadaver. And whenever I could get access to one, I would do it. And then when I worked in Chicago, I would volunteer to help in the courses that they would teach at the academy. And I would use the cadavers. And there was also a pretty big OBGYN program and they, at the hospital that I worked in. And they had a lot of cadaveric work. And I got access to those and did cadavers. And I think that I would advise anybody who's interested in doing hip surgery that that's an absolutely necessary part of your training and ongoing practice. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I, I do a fair amount of PAO, but uh, certainly nothing like you do. And I, I really think of all the areas that I work in, it's probably the most important. Uh, it's our learners have gone towards a time when they can just hop on View Medi or Poston Academy and watch you or Woody or whoever teaching them how to do a PAO. But I think that the ability to understand the changes in three dimensions can only be done after, you know, trialing it over and over and over. So I really feel bad uh, for p people who don't have that opportunity. And we've had, like in the state of Michigan, there have been a few people who've done PAOs. And I mean, you can really, really, really hurt somebody with a PAO. And it's so important to understand what you're doing and the anatomy and the variations in the anatomy. And and I, I'm sure you, you would agree with this, even though you have a lot of experience, there's still some p PAOs that are super challenging. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes you can't necessarily anticipate it ahead of time. And I think because a lot of it is done semi-blind, you have to be able to interpret radiographs in a way such that you can get, you can stay safe even when the anatomy makes it tricky. So I, I totally agree. I think it's, yeah. you know, it's, it's tough. And, and you just have to like, it's like learning how to fly. You know, you have to fly in good weather all the time to be able to have the confidence to, you know, weather the turbulence. And the same is true with, with surgery. You have to, be very good at managing everything when it's going smoothly in order to have the presence of mind to get yourself through safely uh, when you're dealing with more challenging and complicated operations. I agree. So along those lines, you know, my practice actually sort of directly mirrors yours. So I'm about 80% spine and my non, uh, you know, sort of routine general peds uh, volume. I still do foot. I still do some guided growth and, and whatnot. But a lot of sort of my referral network is for complex spine and then hip, but hips like 20, 30%, something like that. I struggled for the first couple of years, like, how do I balance this? How do I balance ever increasing complexity of my spine practice and my hip practice, but staying sharp in my general practice? And I think you have always seemed to me as somebody who enjoys the fact that you are still a general pediatric orthopedist, but how do you stay, you know, relevant and, uh, and up to date in your general stuff and your spine stuff? I get my spine refreshers at IPOS. You know, I've been very fortunate to be 
part of the faculty at IPOS and, you know, probably for the past 10 years, I think. And um, I go to the spine lectures, you know, like anybody else attending there, I go and I, I attend the spine lectures. The other, the other way I do it is that we have a spine fellowship at Beaumont Hospital. Uh, it's a very, very good adult spine fellowship. And we do journal club with the fellows. So um, once a quarter, we review five to eight articles. So I really do keep up on the, on the literature. And I've also honed my practice down. Like I, I don't do any early onset scoliosis anymore. I see the patients, but I, I send them to our younger partners who are more interested. And um, some of the really, really complicated deformities and revisions, I just don't do those anymore. So I would say, you know, we used to kind of joke around about these country club curves. That's sort of like my practice now. It's right, right. <laughs> mostly country club curves. And, you know, I, I feel like I'm still very sharp in managing those patients. And um, I, I think you, you have to know your own limits, you know, and, and you know, if you're going to do, I would never do like one pedicle subtraction osteotomy a year, just not worthwhile for the patient. And it's not worthwhile for me. And I think you have to focus on what, uh, where you're strong for the patient's sake. When it all boils down to it, you know, we have someone's life in our hands and we're totally responsible for our actions and it has to be for the benefit of the patient. And if you're not doing something often, you shouldn't do it. You know, it's, it's different, you know, guided growth. Of course, you, if you could do one of those a year and it's not that difficult, but uh, yep. complicated things are complex and, and they're better handled by people who do them all the time. And I, I've made the conscious decision not to do certain things. And do you think, uh, and I, so I totally agree with everything you said. And I think as I've, as I've gotten further on in my practice, I'm realizing that more and more. Do you think that if we had this conversation in five years, it would be the same blend or do you like, in other words, can you continue to do your country club scoliosis curves? Can you continue to do some of your other stuff or is it going to get to the point where just purely through uh, referral volumes that your hip pro process is, is so involved, it's going to take all your time? I think it's going to evolve because we're taking on a, another partner this summer and uh, I think I'm probably going to just finish up this year with my operative spines that have been scheduled over the summertime. And then I'm going to hand everything over just because it's just a time issue. You know, it's sometimes hard. Like I, my schedule is booked out usually like four or five months for, for hips. And then, you know, you see a spine and of course the parents want to schedule it around the child's school and family activities, which is very reasonable. And you have a long relationship with the family and they want you to do the surgery and and so I think I'm going to stop doing it probably this year. Uh, not because I don't enjoy it. I do, I do enjoy the patients and, and I do enjoy the technical aspects of the surgery, but I think it's just time for me to try to delegate those things to somebody who wants to focus more on it, just like I want to focus more on the hip. Yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned Anchor uh, previously and, and that you started when it was sort of nascent. I'd love to hear more about it. I mean, it, it's it's obviously as a closed organization, we see the the fruits of the labor of the members who are involved. And obviously it's, you know, it's certainly probably the most proliferative research group that's out there. But how did it start? And I think more importantly, how did you get started with that? So there was um, the AO HIP course used to alternate between Switzerland and uh, some ski location in North America. And uh, in 2003, it was at Tahoe. I was scheduled to go, and then my wife went into labor, so I didn't go. And um, it, she, she, she went into labor prematurely, so I didn't go. And fortunately, they recorded it, and uh, you know I was able to watch it on CDs, remember CDs? And, yeah, uh, yeah. and the study group started then. And it was really for adults. And it was just like Wash U, Boston, and Switzerland. And then Ernie Sink, who was at Col in Colorado, and I, you know, we really tried to start something for pediatrics. And I had the support of our late chairman, um, Harry Herkowitz, and he funded meetings here. And, you know, basically immediately the pediatric and the adult merged, and that was Anchor. And there were six institutions initially, Colorado, Boston, Dallas, Ottawa, HSS and WashU. And then, you know, very, like, really right right from the very beginning, you know, John Kovacs, he, he's an incredibly organized and effective human being. You know, he's he, he can really drive things. And he's been the catalyst for the organization. And, and it's been very effective. And uh, 
And then it's grown a lot, as you know, to add a lot of different institutions. It's a pretty big group now. Yeah. When you got started, when you mentioned the research support you had, so it sounds like, you know, for us getting involved, for example, in the harms took a little bit of work to make sure that we had the the staff and the support to fill out the, you know, sudden increase in forms needed and, and enrollment and things like that. Did it take a while to build that or was that already available to you? We were all doing it like on our spare, in our spare time. Some people had support and some people didn't. They had more support in at Washington University, and so that became the repository for all the the data. Fortunately, because you know that's probably the most appropriate place for it. And uh, in terms of like the follow ups and and all the forms, I mean, we were all on our own, and every every hospital did it a little bit differently. And in our case, like in in, in Detroit, I felt like, as I mentioned before, you know, I was operating on large numbers of hip patients and and that was how I was making my living and we really didn't know a lot and I felt personally obligated like morally obligated to um, give back to that field and so I had no financial support and I just paid for a research assistant out of my income so I'm in a large private practice and everybody's allocated certain resources and if you need more resources you have to pay for them separately and I chose to pay for a research person separately to help keep track of everything and follow the patients because I felt it was the right thing to do, frankly. You know, I wouldn't, I, I, I didn't like the idea of just operating on these patients and not learning about the diseases and the natural history and the evolution and the complications and the workup and best practices. And so that's how it evolved. So I, I, I you know, paid for a research person out of my income for many years. That's awesome. I, we've some of my partners have have done that within our, uh, you know, the Children's Healthcare of Atlanta group. I was fortunate enough to have some grant funding uh, that sort of carried through. But um, you know, I it's it's certainly honorable to to take that approach. I, and I would wholeheartedly agree. I mean, we started early on yeah. trying to follow our patients, and I think that it, you know we owe it to them and to future patients to make sure that we're tracking yeah. them. Although I will ask, you know, as we've gotten better at getting more information, they, it seems as though my clinics get busier and busier and my ability to digest and process the information. You know, for example, if I get a patient with an SRS score, sometimes my ability to actually look at that score, you know, break down that score and say, okay, here's, here, you know, here's what I think is going on and here's where we're, where we have room for improvement has been limited. I think just as my practice has gotten bigger, uh, have you found that as well? Like, do you find that you're able to really pour through the data that's coming back to you in real time? I, I, I agree completely with you, Nick. I cannot do that. First of all, I, I don't think it's really valuable unless there's something outstanding about the patient that makes the patient very different. I think it's it's it can go that you can go down a rabbit hole trying to digest the data in real hole in real time. I think it's better digested in aggregate. I mean, there's also limitations to digesting the data in aggregate also. Right. But um, I do think that it's more efficient to do it in in aggregate. And I personally, like, agree with you completely. I cannot do it in in real time. We we, we are so busy seeing patients. And, you know, the research coordinator goes into the room, gives the patient the forms. They fill them out. Or now they're filling them out, out online. When they when they filled them out in front of me, I would sometimes glance at them and look at them, but now I don't even see them because it's all on a tablet. So, right, and yet U.S. News is asking for us to fill them out as though that's changing patient care. It's sort of an interesting dilemma. It is interesting. It is interesting. Yeah. It, it's just not realistic in a in a clinic in today's environment to be able to personally administer those questionnaires and to go over forms with patients and be able to remain viable. You know, do what your institution wants you to do and I, I don't know. I would. I do, I do not know how I could ever do that. Yeah, I've struggled with it as well. So, yeah, another organization that you're really involved with is IHDI, um, which was a, a little bit of a more recent development, right? Well, IHDI. To be honest with you, I'm not really that involved with it. You know, I think that um, there was some coordination between IPOS and IHDI. They wanted. I mean, not IPOS. Uh, Anchor and IHDI. They wanted to have a resource on, on the, especially on the IHDI website for adults with hip dysplasia. And that's how we got involved. But I, I really have not been involved academically. I follow everything that they do. And I think it's an amazing organization and the story behind it. It's, it's great. It's pretty awesome. Um, yeah. It's awesome. 
you know, I, I honestly, I wish I was more involved, but it just never worked out that way. And, and from a time standpoint, I think that uh, I probably would not have had the time to, to devote fully to it. One organization seems to be sort of yeah. Like, I mean, it's, what most it's, of us can do. It's incredibly time consuming. I mean, yeah. I, I, I'm in awe of Dan Scotto, who's so involved in Anchor and also involved in so many different spine study groups and 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 manages to run a major yeah <laughs> yeah yeah yeah. Well, he's got a, he's got a huge bandwidth, you know, way 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 more than I can even conceive. So. Yeah, Dan, Dan's pretty special. Yeah. So what what uh, at Anchor right now has you really sort of interested? What, what's really interesting that you guys are working on? So, I mean, we're continuing to do outcomes. And right now there's a very interesting prospective referral on hip impingement, which really affects adults. You know, it's not so important in, in, the, in the pediatric population. And one, one thing that I've, I've learned from Anchor is that a lot of what we're doing clinically, we don't really have good basic science justification for and um, starting in July, I'm going to be working uh, part-time at the University of Michigan and, and uh, really because it's the kind of premier research institute in the upper Midwest and um, they have like incredible resources in the lab. And I really want to like kind of look, use what we've learned clinically and, and try to look more in a basic science way to understand fully what we're doing. I think a lot of, a lot of what we do in particularly in adult orthopedics and in adult, it affects adolescents, particularly arthroscopically, is misguided, in my opinion. A lot of the labor work we're doing is questionable. Let's put it that way. My kids would yeah. say, it, my kids would say it's sus, suspicious. But um, <laughs> and uh, I really would like to try to learn more about instability. I think instability is probably the number one problem that affects the hip and it can masquerade as a lot of different things. And there's probably more than one form of instability. Uh, we, we know that from, you know, clinical outcomes, doing PAOs on hips that you think would never need a PAO and the outcome scores are, are tremendous. So I'd like to try to understand that more anatomically, physiologically. And I'm really uh, looking forward to that sort of as the last stage of what I do. Yeah. That's, that's great. So I, I actually wanted, I'd, I'd written down a couple of areas that I just always find interesting that I, I thought yeah. you could rift on. So, so, but starting with PAO, I'm curious, um, there's been, uh, I had sort of two questions. So where, where do you think PAO is limited right now? And I know that you, for example, have been involved in the development of different instrumentation, like the sort of a, a PAO set, um, if you right. will, to do the cuts. But it strikes me that it is still, I mean, almost like pinning an elbow. It's this very complex operation that is secure, that is done all through fluoroscopy and that is secured with, you know, three or four stainless steel screws. Right. Um, and so the question is looking forward, do you think if we had that conversation in 10 years that we would again still be talking about a similar operation done under fluoro and fixed with screws or are, are, are we at the, you know, with the idea of this sort of less invasive approach, maybe we start using navigation a bit more. I know some people are using it. Where yeah. do you think the future is for that? I think that's an excellent question. And I think I, I would probably break that up into little pieces. Okay. So I think the, the future of PAO is to understand instability of the hip and, and, uh, what factors combine to create an unstable hip. And it, I think that, um, when we understand that we will be able to perhaps use the PAO more selectively. And I don't know if it'll be used more widely, but definitely more, more selectively and with a better scientific justification. And I, I think that, that that's, that's going to happen probably, you know, within a decade, I would, I would guess. A lot of people looking at it, a lot of different powerful, powerful tools today that did, didn't exist 15 or 20 years ago that can be used to evaluate these things. So I think that we're going to understand instability. I think from a technical standpoint, like in terms of executing the PAO, I, I think it's going to become a, 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 a not a percutaneous procedure, but I think a much less invasive procedure. And we've been experimenting in cadavers and you know, we can pretty much do, I would say, 70% of the osteotomies percutaneously. The challenge is the really dense bone, you know, inferior to the acetabulum. And so I think that, I think things will evolve. Uh, I know that there have been some companies like, um, I was working a few years ago with um, 
intuitive. You know, they make the Da Vinci robot. <clears throat> and we were trying to do the osteotomy endoscopically with a lot of their navigation tools. And you can get to everywhere that you need to get to. But the gyroscopes and they go haywire when there's a lot of vibration. So, you know, maybe there's going to be some engineering improvements to perhaps even do it robotically. But I, I do I do see it as as um, becoming much much uh, less invasive and and even today like you know if you see somebody who's very experienced who does it you know they can be in a thin person it's a very small procedure and and it's not the same operation it was you know when I learned it like our patients I would say thirty percent of our second siders go home the day of surgery and probably eighty five percent of our first timers go home you know basically they're tw- we book them for twenty three hour stays so they're usually not in the hospital even 24 hours. So it has gotten a lot less invasive. And then I think the other thing is going to be the training. I think that we have to figure out a way, as more people do this, the concentration of the practice becomes more dilute. And as you alluded to in the beginning, it's really a very difficult operation to do safely and reproducibly. And um, I think that the training has to evolve. And I, I don't know the answer to that, to be honest with you. I, I think that, that that problem exists in many areas of orthopedics now. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and in spine, I know you see that as well. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I don't have a good answer for the training. I, I think that, I think personally that we're probably going to evolve into a single joint specialty. You know, you'll have spine, you'll have hip surgeons, knee surgeons. I think that's probably the only feasible way to, to train people properly. The European model. I think so. Yeah, yeah. That's. I, I think you're you're probably not wrong there. Although they'd have to figure out some of the billing and that kind of thing, the reimbursement side. Yeah, that's about uh, my pay grade. Yeah, yeah. So um, a, another thing that I think has has been really interesting, and you know, I'm I've been in practice for 11 years, so it's I haven't had too many things that have like quickly come in and then go out of favor in such a short amount of time. But when I went to my first IPOS, which I think was 2007, Professor Gans was talking about surgical dislocation, femoral head reduction in the in Perthes. And, you know, we were, we were starting a prospective trial with Dave and Dan out in Dallas um, in, in 2009 for, for Skiffy. And now, you know, I did probably 15 modified DUNS, and then I haven't done one in I did one actually a year ago for sort of a weird revision case, but it's a it's a very uncommon operation. And part of that is that Tim Schrader is in my group and that we've sort of moved away towards his approach. What is the role for you currently for Modified Done? And and do you think, again, a couple of years down the road, we're going to be talking about Modified Done as a, as a procedure that might, that's going to be done more than maybe once a year? I, I, I think that there's a role for it. I mean, we were incredibly enthusiastic for about the procedure, you know, 15 years ago. And with some experience, the enthusiasm has waned. And some of those experiences have been bad experiences, but also some of the experiences have been good experiences. Like uh, Tim Schrader's work has, and John Schenecker's work has really shown us that you don't need to subject many, many of these hips to a, a huge operation. And, you know, the whole dogma, which I was trained to never touch it and don't do any reduction and just pin it where it is. That's also not true as well. But I think that there are people who, who whose hips cannot be managed without a modified done. And so we see still, you know, kids acute on chronic slips that won't budge, that are that are dangerous to reduce, or kids who have still open physis, which sut with such high grade deformities that um, they're really best managed with a modified done. So I do think there's a role for it. Um, you know, it's not a panacea. We have data that we're st- I'm still trying to finish writing up um, that these heads are sick heads. They don't they, even if with a successful reduction, no avascular necrosis, they still don't grow normally, and the joints aren't normal. But I think that they're probably better than leaving these terrible deformities. We see a lot of kids in Detroit who have untreated skippy still, and they don't function well. They're they're very disabled. So. I think that there's a role for it. I think that, again, you know, how do you train people to do that procedure when, you know, you go to do your fellowship in Dallas and there's four fellows and two people doing modified DUNS and maybe you see one, or if you're lucky, two, or you come and do your fellowship in Atlanta and maybe you see one. So you're not ready to go out to do them. So that's a training issue. I think that there's got to be people who know how to do them safely because I think it's a necessary operation. Yeah, I agree. And I'll tell you, um, for those who 
haven't seen it, I think John Schenecker's trope sparing proximal femoral resection has been a little bit of a godsend from a trainee standpoint because you can take them through everything. The reduction part, you're going to have to uh, have to teach a little bit more conceptually or maybe in a cadaveric model, but the ability to do, you know, to create your extended retinacular flap and do all of that and then just take the head off because you're done with it is, is sort of nice because it limits the risk. And I think you can, that's something that at least down in Atlanta with a large CP population, we do a fair amount. Yeah, I think that that's really good. You have to use the tools that you have to expose um, trainees to the correct techniques and the proper techniques. It's still, there's still a huge leap of faith though. Even yeah, if you show them how to develop the retinacular flap and then, you know, you reduce the head, how, how tight is it? How loose is it? How, yep. how do you rotate it? And um, I think it's, uh, it's incredibly challenging. I, I really, I wish I knew the right way to preserve these operations it's interesting that you, you asked that question because Professor Gans had this idea of making a, a surgical atlas for the surgical dislocation procedure and all its applications. And so we just um, got a publisher to agree to publish the book. It's going to be written in German and English, and it's going to be an international textbook in quotes. So every chapter is going to have a North American and a European or um, Asian author. And uh, we're, we're hopefully going to preserve, it's going to be incredibly detailed. Hopefully we're going to preserve these techniques. People have a good reference guide for them. Yeah, that's that, that's uh, going to be awesome. That's a great idea too. Yeah, I think it's a great idea. I'm very thankful to be part of it and I think it, it, sh- it should be a really nice uh, resource for everybody. So you mentioned the the older patient or the untreated deformity. And the next question that I have had was along the realm of Perthes. But, you know, it's funny. So we do a lot of work combined with our, my Emory partners. Sure. So I, I'm at Children's, but I, I still have um, staff privileges and my, you know, academic degree or of, uh, uh, everything academically is through Emory. And so we have this discussion a lot where we will take a really deformed chronic healed slip or a really bad Perthes hip and do some proximal femoral osteotomy that completely changes the anatomy. And at least in the short term, we think gives them better outcomes. And my adult partners are now telling, you know, their sickle cell patients or their young adults with femoral neck fractures who went on to AVN that as far as we know, after about a year, these modern bearings aren't wearing. And so the the last sort of question that I had that was more disease specific is, how are you viewing that nowadays as you're looking at the kid with the, you know, pretty significant residual deformity in Perthes or in Skiffy, and you have this capacity to, you know, send them off for total hip versus do something on your own with a femoral head reduction or a large, you know, intra-articular work for Perthes or, or proximal femoral flexion, rotational osteotomy for, uh, for, slip, uh, for a Skiffy. I mean, that, that's a great question, and I, I don't think we can really answer the question scientifically I th- until we have a really good, reliable, reproducible way to look at quality of articular cartilage and durability of articular cartilage. Um, but we're at a sort of a watershed time in hip preservation surgery because the total hip used to be not a great operation. I mean, you know, 10 years would be a good, good long-term survivorship. And now these stems last forever, basically. And, and if the hip doesn't get infected, you know, a, a few liner changes is not a really big deal for, for, for many of these patients and surgeons. And so I think we have to be much more selective in terms of who we do these big operations on and, and how our operations affect a total hip replacement. And so I really have, I would say my, my average age for, for intervention has gone way down. 20 years ago, we, w- we would operate on people in their 30s routinely, and I rarely operate on somebody who's, old, who's older than their very young 20s now. Because a good hip replacement can last a long, long time and probably will function better and give the patient a better quality of life. And the last thing you want to do is like, marry somebody to a bad outcome of a hip, hip preserving surgery when they could be doing much better with the total hip replacement. So do we know the answer scientifically? No. I mean, I would say my personal experience, I'm, I, I much, much, much more selective. And I, I think these operations are really effective, especially in like teens and people in their young twenties who 
still have the physiologic capacity to remodel a little bit their joint after surgery. Older than that, I, I really question whether or not they should be done, frankly. Yeah, that's uh, that's sort of how we've gone. And I still actually, just because it's not as big part of pra- my practice and because I get the opportunity to operate with one of my best friends, I do all my POs and always have with a guy who I trained with in residency and we're super close friends. And he's an arthroplasty guy. And he was he brought anterior hip surgery really to Atlanta and definitely to Emory. And we, for a while, I mean, I operated on one of my very close friends uh, when she was 44 or so. And it went great, but it took like two years. And I think, you know, there were numerous times. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, she, she finally got to the point where said, man, my hip feels great. But I think that if I asked her honestly, she'd say, I sort of wish I'd had the, you know, hour long operation and walked out of the hospital that day. So, well, see that the PAO is different. I think, you know, I, I, I do PAOs on people in their, in their forties, provided their cartilage is good. And, you know, they, they do very, very, very well. I mean, it's a lot longer muscular recovery than the young people, but I, I, I think in general, they're, they're quite happy with their operation. I, I think if you push it and start operating on people who have cartilage damage, then that's not really appropriate in that age group. But I do think that it's, it's really a joint specific operation. I mean, there's 15 year olds who shouldn't have a PAO and there's 45 year olds who will do great with a PAO. And we need to understand that more as a field to be able to really say to people, listen, I'm sorry, it's not the right thing. Or you know what, you're going to do great with this operation. And um, I think there's a, there's really a a disconnect or a gap in our basic understanding. And and hopefully I will help contribute to that. And and I'm sure others will. And uh, there's a lot of great work being done on, on cartilage degradation and imaging. And I think it'll eventually become married with the clinical work to benefit patients and to make surgeons decision-making a lot easier and more scientifically based. Yeah. I think that, I mean, that'd be incredibly helpful, um, really, really for the the field in general, but, and I mean, I, I think that there are applications that would span across peds and adults, which would be really helpful as right. well. Yeah. I'm sure you feel similarly. Like I'm very thankful that I work in a large group of adult surgeons. I mean, they're a different breed than we are, but, but they're also very knowledgeable. And we have a ton to learn from them. And I, I think, being siloed sometimes in pediatric hospitals is not as healthy for our specialty and our own personal professional development. I, I, to, I, could not, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I've done foot reconstructions with an adult partner who wanted my help in a 17-year-old. And he put, you know, obviously you came from Dallas like I did. You know, we put $30,000 worth of plates and screws in this flat foot reconstruction when, you know, you and I would use a couple of bone grafts and maybe a Steinman pin. And I think that that the ability to see what they have. I didn't even really know that there were foot sets when I did that case. That was several years ago. But so working with this adult surgeon in the hip world has been incredibly beneficial for me for different approaches that I hadn't thought through. You know, he does seven anterior approaches a day routinely. And, you know, there's no way that I would ever, I mean, even if I would, my hip practice was like yours, you're going to do that volume. So they see a lot of things. He's helped us get out of trouble a couple of times when I just wasn't, uh, you know, familiar with a certain variant, whatnot. And then also in the spine world. I mean, it's, it's really helpful in the, in the spine world to have both neurosurgeons and adult surgeons who can, can sort of help uh, with complex stuff. So I, I would encourage anybody out there who has, you know, a peds only practice to find an adult partners in the area that they oh, are passionate I whole, about. I wholeheartedly agree. I mean, I, I can't tell you how much I have personally benefited from a technical standpoint and, and also from, from a, an understanding standpoint of working with our foot, adult foot and ankle people, our adult traumatologists, and our total hips. Our, our, our total joint people are really, really high volume. And I think that they have been incredibly, they've been on the forefront of, of outpatient surgery, multimodal pain therapy. And, and actually a lot of this like worked its way into the anchor group because I think many people do what I learned from our adult colleagues at, at Beaumont and it's benefited a lot of patients. I agree. Now, it, which sort of brings us, you mentioned trauma. Um, I found that as one of our sort of hip specialists within our peds group, that I end up doing a fair amount of the pelvic and acetabular trauma because I'm more familiar with the anatomy. Do you find, Do you feel that nationally that may be a role for the hip specialist? Um, because right now, you know, or in, in patients who I'm not comfortable with, I send them over to Grady, which is our level one center, but it's hard sending a 12 year old over to a county hospital. And that's sort of a scary location for them. Um, 
do you feel that that there might be a role in the peds world for you know a hip group to sort of build that out to have acetabular and pelvic trauma training well, you know it's it's the it's just that we don't have that many cases that's the problem and and they they do have some anatomic unique factors but um i take care of most of our our kids pelvic fra- i mean acetabular fractures who who are under 16 years of age. But what I don't feel comfortable with are the, you know, hemodynamically unstable pelvic fractures and our adult traumatologists, you know, they they whip those things together and stabilize the patient in seconds. And, you know, it would not take me seconds. And, and so I do think that, you know, hip people are capable of taking care of a lot of the fractures. You know, we have the, the tools to do that and, and the understanding of the anatomy I, I really don't think it's that difficult, but I, I don't, I'm a little bit leery of the major pelvic trauma. I mean, I don't know how you feel about that, but I, I really involve that. When we have a, a kid who has a major pelvic fracture, I involve our adult people. That's what I do, but you know, we, we are separate entities. So, but I've had two vertically unstable pelvic fracture or, you know, uh, vertical shear SI injuries in the past two months. Uh, there was one week where we fixed three, but, but then they'll go a year without it. So to your point, they're not that many of them when they come, they can be challenging. Um, but I found that having a little bit better understanding of hip anatomy and pathology and, you know, being able to understand pelvic ring injuries a little bit better, I think has, has given me an opportunity to, to learn to treat those. I just, um, it's, it's an unanswered question at our center is how to manage those kids um, yeah. best. Well, we, 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 we have, um, we leave it up to the discretion of the, of the pediatric orthopedic surgeon. So, you know, if I'm in town, I'll help and I'll, and I'll, even if I'm not on call, I'll come in and, and take care of things with the other colleagues of mine. But if, if it's a very unstable fracture or a hemodynamically unstable patient, then we really get the adult guys involved. They're so good. They're facile. You know, we like to stay involved with the care of the patient, but they can put an SI screw in, in, in 15 minutes and, it would take me a lot longer than that. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Uh, I wanted to finish up with a couple of questions sure. about sort of your your roles within your group and leadership within the the group. Especially, maybe take me where you're at, take me from where you started to where you're at now from a leadership standpoint on the PED side in your group and how you balance that with some of the national duties that you have either at Anchor or at Posna or, or whatnot. You know, we we have a small group of pediatric orthopedic surgeons, just three of us, and. We get along really well. Um, there's not really a lot of leadership. We're all like-minded. <clears throat> we, sh- we split everything equally. You know, I have a, a lot of travel obligations, not so much in the past couple of years, but in the past I had had a lot, and they were very helpful at covering me when I was gone, but I, I made it up when I was back. I guess my um, take on leadership is that, and I think I learned this from Harry Herkowitz, is that you got to like lead from the tip of the spear. So you have to be working as hard, if not harder, than everybody else. And basically, you should be in the trenches with everybody as a leader. And I think that that goes a long way. And in our bigger group, we have you know 50 surgeons or so. Um, I have a lot of responsibilities, but they're more like regarding the business aspects of medicine. But I think similarly, you know, if you if you're fair and and you look at it for everybody and not just a certain segment, you're much credible. And that's how I've always strived to be. So even to my own personal loss, which I, yeah. think, which I think is important to demonstrate to people. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, I, I mean, I think it's, it's a challenge. We we've, as I mentioned, we joined Choa. So now my group is all peds, although I, you know, I still have affiliation with Emory, but when it was at Emory, it was just two of us. And it was great that my partner who's still my partner of children's is uh, one of my closest friends but you do have a lot of responsibilities to the larger group. And I think that, that making sure that you're continuing to be a value, even though, you know, the only thing I'm basically doing for them is if their kid falls off the swing, they can call me up and say, Hey, my kid fell off the swing. Can I get him in to see you? They're not referring me, you know, a lot of uh, complex stuff out of their, you know, geriatric hip practice. Um, but, uh, but I've, I, I did find that it was a little bit struggle of a struggle sometimes to sort of justify the, the work that I was doing nationally because it wasn't as relevant on the adult side. Well, I mean, are you, is your group academically oriented or non-academically oriented? 
So Emery is very academically oriented, but no longer has a peds only component. When we were there, um, you know, we, there were just two of us amidst, I think at the time there were 70. Now there are a hundred orthopedic surgeons at, at, at Emory. It's a huge group. Mm-hmm. Now that we're with Tim Schrader in that group, there are, you know, 13 surgeons. And I think that the academic component of it is a little bit mixed. There are several of us who are very academically inclined and several who are less academically inclined. And it actually works out pretty well. We're all big into educating the fellows um, and the residents who come through, but it's, you know, there's definitely a lot of balls in the air. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a difficult balance. I thought you were asking me, how is it within a larger group? And well, I'm curious about both. Yeah. I mean, I think that I don't want to disparage the adult orthopedic surgeons. Definitely not. But I think that like pediatric people, we just look at things a little bit differently and, you know, money is not so important all the time because half of the patients I treat at least have are on financial assistance. And, and so it's just not a factor. And I think that because of that, maybe as one primary factor, we just look at life a little differently than a lot of our adult colleagues. And um, I think that that suits that sets pediatric people up to be seen as very fair very kind, not necessarily motivated by some of the same things that motivate other people. And I think it, it's a, sort of a natural that we, many pediatric surgeons have become leaders in larger groups of basically department heads of adult surgeons and leaders in different aspects of orthopedics nationally. Um, I think it's, I think we have a different, a different quality to us that maybe develops just because of the environment that we work in. I wouldn't say it's not present in other people. I think it is, but I think it becomes a large part of who we are as, as professionals. And yeah, I, I, I think it, maybe more. it's a certain empathy, uh, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to know. I'm just thankful I'm a pediatric orthopedic surgeon. I'll tell you that. And that's the bottom line. And I'm very thankful for all of our, our national organizations. I think they're fantastic. And the leadership in pediatric orthopedic surgery is incredible. I mean, I, I, I'm in awe of all the, people who are our leaders, you know, it's just, it's incredible. They're amazing human beings, good people to emulate. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, but approachable enough that, oh, yeah. you know, yeah. Which is they're real people. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, Ira, this has been great. Uh, you've been terrific and, and this has been incredibly, uh, gone very quick and I, I enjoy getting to, to talk to you more and learn a little bit about your story. Well, thank you. It was really nice talking to you, Nick. And, uh, Hopefully we can get on the tennis court sometime together. Uh, I would love to get on the tennis court sometime for sure. Take care, Nick. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you very much for this opportunity. It was uh, really fun. Absolutely.